Welcome to First Check, a podcast so you can learn how to be the next great venture capitalist or angel investor. You've seen the Ubers, Googles, and Pindos of the world, the 10x to 100x returns, and you want to know how you can get in on the action. As a partner at Co-Founders Capital, host of First Check, Tim McLaughlin, has invested over $43 million in startups. And on this podcast, he's going to share with you what works and what doesn't, so you can be ready to write your first check. Today's guest is John Hayes, founder of Rewardstock. You might recognize John from his episode of Shark Tank, where he pitched Rewardstock to the most powerful angel investors in the world and made a deal with Mark Cuban. Rewardstock was also a part of Co-Founders Capital Fund One. And Tim and John have worked closely together at the Co-Founders Lab Startup Accelerator in Cary, North Carolina. John has raised money from venture capital, from angel investors, and even from a shark. And today he gives the founders perspective on great questions to ask and some of the more frustrating parts of working with investors. Here's the host of First Check, Tim McLaughlin. How you doing, John? Hey, I'm good, Tim. Thanks for having me. So John, why don't you give everybody a little background on what Rewardstock does? Yeah. So Rewardstock is a platform that helps people maximize the opportunities that they have to save money with their credit card reward points. So all your frequent flyer miles, your hotel points, your credit card points, everybody knows that there's some trick to getting a, a good trip out of those points. And most people don't, don't know how to do it. They just know somebody that they know has done it and it becomes too much of a hassle for them to figure out themselves. We decided to build software that would automate all the hard thinking and strategizing for you and help you get the most amount of savings possible from your everyday spending. Yeah. And, and I have to be honest, I was very, very bad at using any sort of points that I had accumulated. And I signed up to be a reward stock member. And I, I'm not just making this up because John is here. I did not spend a dime <laughs> on any travel for two and a half years that I did. And this is pre-COVID. So we were actually traveling at that point. Right. So yeah, was- we were actually traveling and I went two and a half years without spending a dime. So thank you, John. Well, you, you're quite welcome. I, I figure that's the least I could do for, uh, for an investor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, John, how did you get into this? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an entrepreneur. Certainly. So I went to Princeton and I was an economics major there. I thought that I was going to be an investment banker for life. So I graduated and really got heavy into investment banking, working on Wall Street. I did mergers and acquisitions advisory at Citigroup, really enjoyed it. I was top ranked in my class. It seemed like something I was going to do for for a whole career. After doing it for seven years, you know, most people do investment banking for two years, sometimes three. After seven years of doing banking, I was kind of at a place where I wanted to have a new challenge. And I started thinking about what, what else I could do or how I could break up my banking experience. I thought I still would be a banker long term, but I was just kind of looking for something to, to kind of mix up the experience. And I actually started applying for a White House Fellows Program. And in the process of doing that, I ended up meeting an entrepreneur who had previously done the White House Fellows Program. 
and I met him in this little studio that he was renting for his, his office space for his new startup. I knew nothing about entrepreneurship at that point. And I was supposed to be meeting him to talk about this fellowship, but I was more fascinated by, you know, the fact that this guy who was a former banker like me, a young black guy, you know, launched his startup and was in this little studio. And I'm like, this is, this is amazing to me. And it really just kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of launching a startup. It turns out this was a, a pretty good guy to have met. His name is Robert Refkin. And the little company that he was starting in this little studio is a company that at the time was called Urban Compass. Now it's just called Compass. And they've raised, I think, over $7 billion <laughs> in funding at this point. So, or, or they've raised over a billion and the company's worth over $7 billion, I think is, is how that goes. So quite a successful entrepreneur and very inspirational to me. So instead of taking the subway home, I actually walked home like 30 blocks or whatever it was. And the whole time I was thinking, you know, maybe I could launch a company. And so the reward stock story started really a few years prior, back when I was in banking, I got a call from my older brother who said that he wanted to take a trip to South America and wanted to know if I would go with him. And I said, sure. It was kind of during the financial crash, you know, banking wasn't quite as busy. And so I had some vacation time I could take. And I said, you know, where are we going to go? So he starts listing a bunch of cities. He says, we'll go to Lima, Peru. We'll see Machu Picchu. And we'll go to Buenos Aires, Argentina, Santiago, Chile. And I think we can fit in Easter Island on the way back. We're going to fly business class the whole way. And we're going to stay in four and five star hotels. Now, at this point, I'm a Wall Street banker. And I'm just seeing the dollar signs on this <laughs> trip. And I'm like, I can't afford this trip you work a nine to five in Raleigh, North Carolina, how on earth can you afford this trip? That's when he explained to me that he'd been doing all this research into reward points. And he thought he'd kind of figured out a strategy with different credit cards and stuff. I was very skeptical, very skeptical, but I figured worst came to worst. I could pay for the trip and use every dollar of my bonus. <laughs> That's what it seemed like it was going to cost and never let him live it down. But what ended up happening is the first flight was from JFK to Lima. We go through the line, the business class line. We're sitting in our business class seats. And the whole time, both of us are as nervous as can be because I was convinced that the, the stewardess was going to come by and say, you guys have to get off the plane, you know, do some kind of final manifest check and see that we paid $5 for our tickets. Meanwhile, she came by and asked if we wanted champagne or orange juice for our kind of pre-flight snack. So that changed everything. And that's when we realized this was a real thing. And, and it immediately went to our heads. And, and we have a hard time flying anything less than business class now. It, it's got its downsides also. But that was, that's what kicked it off. And a few years later, I took an amazing honeymoon. My wife and I flew first class to the Maldives. We spent about $200 in taxes and fees for a trip that should have cost more than $40,000. Coming back from that honeymoon, that, that's when I kind of had this encounter with, with Robert. Refkin was kind of in this mode where I was looking for something new to do and just decided I'm going to try this, quit my job a, a couple months later and spent about a year teaching myself how to write code and kind of trying to build a prototype. And then that's when I met uh, co-founders capital. It was, it was actually almost five years to the day. Uh, well, well, that's great. We're glad we could enter at that point and, and provide some value for our guests. You've already heard a little bit from John. He is a 
Ivy League graduate, MA banker in on Wall Street. He is a self-taught coder, but there's more to his story that we're we're gonna we're gonna get to. You worked on this, you you started doing coding on your own. You decided it was time to, to raise some capital. How did you go about that process? Yeah, so when I quit banking, you know, my wife and I were newly married, right? We just come back from our honeymoon. We moved out of New York within three weeks of quitting banking. And part of the thinking there was we were planning on moving out of New York long-term anyway. We wanted a place that was more conducive to settling down, raising a family, putting down roots, right? So Raleigh was on the list. I had spent time here as a kid, right? I was born here and and went, went to school here for a little while. So I quit banking, moved to Raleigh. At first, my thinking was part of this impetus for moving more quickly to Raleigh was just cutting down overhead. Our, our rent in Raleigh was 25% of what our rent was in New York. So immediate savings there. And my thought was, okay, I will spend the next six months building reward stock. After six months, I will know if this is a huge success or if this is a huge failure and I'll move on to the next thing if that's the case. All right. That was my initial expectation. It was going to take six months to know if this was going to be a home run. Six years later <laughs> is when I sold the company. A little bit off on, on the calibration there. But my initial thinking was, you know, I had an idea for the, for the platform, right? It was basically do all the things that I had just done by hand and convert that into a platform that someone else who doesn't have, didn't have the experience that I had didn't know the ins and outs of the credit card programs or the, the ways to use the award charts and, 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 and do redemptions in, in special ways, they could still take advantage of the benefits of the points that they either had or could earn, right? It was a very clear concept from the beginning. And not knowing how to write code, I knew two things right away. One is that I was going to need some help. And two is that I was going to have to learn really quickly because I couldn't afford both financially and from a risk perspective to leave it all in the hands of, of some other developer. Learning code was, was partly to save money. And so what I did was I, I, met, I knew a guy who was a CTO of a company in New York. He was a really talented guy, really good person. I was so nervous, though, in those early days, even just partnering with him. I made one of the classic entrepreneur mistakes, which is believing that the idea is everything, <laughs> right? This, this idea, this, this notion that I have this amazing idea and I felt like I had an amazing idea, but I also felt like if I share it with anybody, then they have the opportunity to steal it from me. And I was so worried about that. So it was so funny. We, me and this guy, his name is Jan. We would meet in this coffee shop in Manhattan you know, just, just before we moved, before I moved out, we would, we would talk about like the scope of this project that I was doing. And it felt like we were having these like top secret meetings. I would be like whispering things and like looking over my shoulder to see if anybody's like overhearing this top secret plan that we're building. But for anybody listening, if you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, or if you're, if you're starting out as an entrepreneur, just, just know, and this is feedback that I try to share as much as I can, because it was such a weird part of the experience for me when I was keeping everything a secret. If just by knowing your idea, someone is going to have the motivation to then quit their job 
which most people are not entrepreneurs by nature, but just by hearing your idea, they're going to instantly become an entrepreneur. Knowing that you have a head start on this idea, they're going to decide this is the idea they're going to pursue. Probably they're a friend of yours if you're talking to them and they're going to, they're going to try to stab you in the back. But more importantly, they're also going to be able to build a better product than you are. If you have an idea that's going to make any money, you're going to have to make it public at some point to have okay. customers. And at that point, if it's a good idea, you're going to have competition. So it's not about not having competition. It's about being able to build it better than the competition. And if your friend is going to quit their job and build a product better than you, then they should actually be the one to build the company, not you. Because <laughs> ultimately, well, you got to be able to beat the competition. It's a very interesting point. Some of the things that we always say is a good entrepreneur and a bad idea will make you a lot more money than the other way around. If we ever are sitting there deciding whether or not we want to make an investment and the criteria for us to make the investment is that the idea doesn't get out into the public and we can somehow keep it to ourselves. <laughs> you can guarantee we're not writing that check if, yeah. the, if, that, if that's a requirement. Side note about that whole notion too, the, the, the lived experience of it is you end up like ruining all your friendships because <laughs> here, here's what I did for a year. You know, all my friends know I quit my Wall Street job. I'm going to launch a startup. That's so cool, John. I am excited for you. What's your startup? I can't tell you. <laughs> I'll they, tell they, you when it's ready. They either thought you didn't like them anymore. Or they thought you were in the CIA. They didn't believe you were actually running a, <laughs> running a startup. So once you, once you started you know, sharing your idea and starting deciding to raise money, where did you start uh, your capital raise process? Yeah, so... That was also a, a super interesting part of this, this journey because I did not know anything about raising money. I knew a lot about finance from my Wall Street background, right? So speaking the language of investors is, is sort of like my native language, right? But I didn't know, I didn't have any connections to anyone in VC or anybody that I knew to be an investor or an angel investor. And I was new to the Raleigh startup ecosystem because it didn't exist when I was here. And I also, I wasn't even thinking entrepreneurship when I was here, you know, in high school, right? One of the first people I met was a connection through the Princeton alumni group. And he introduced me to, it was sort of like, we were at a Princeton alumni event and I was kind of beating around the bush about what I was doing now that I'd moved here, right? Just the notion that I was trying to launch a startup you know, this guy thought, oh, you know, you should meet, you should meet this person. They, they could be a good advisor. And that's kind of how it started. And then that person introduced me to several other people in the ecosystem here and some of the professors in, in economics and entrepreneurship at the, some of the universities here. Not all of them thought that I was on to anything, right? Some of them told me I was going to fail, but also made introductions to other entrepreneurs. I'll never forget, I was at a little entrepreneurship social mingling with one of the entrepreneurs that I had recently met. And we're in a room full of people who are potential investors. And he looks across the room and he points to this guy and he said, out of everybody in here, that's the one guy you need to talk to. And he pointed to David Gardner of Co-Founders Capital. He said, that guy actually writes checks. A lot of other people might, might waste your time. And so David was the first investor that I tried to talk to. I don't know if he would remember this story, but that night he was gracious enough. He gave me his card. He said, let's have a call. 
I reached out to him. We set up a call on the call. I spoke for like 30 minutes outlining my idea. And at the end of it all, he goes, yeah, I don't think it's for me, but I wish you good luck. I'm happy to, you know, help you work through a business plan, you know, look at your Excel model or something like that. If, if you want. So he, so he said no, but he said, but I'm happy to help you moving forward. Right. And I was devastated because I'm like, this is my first rejection because it was my first ask. I remember, and I don't know why I said this to him, but I remember ending the call saying, well, I understand, but I'm not giving up on you yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, and so that's how it started. And reward stock, fast forward, was one of the first investments out of Co-Founders Capital, our first fund back in, in 2015. So I'm, I'm very glad personally, John, that you did not give up on my partner, David Gardner there. And, Indeed. Uh, and you work through it. But there's a little tidbit, I think, for investors and for entrepreneurs in the room is when does no really mean no from an investor? Does it not meet, meet their fund criteria? Is there more they need to see? Is it really a not yet or mm -hmm. not now or a yes if? And it's important to be able to weed through all of that when you're looking to raise money. So, John, let's talk. Let's let's fast forward a little bit in the career of your company to probably the most entertaining story one can find on how to raise capital. You've raised capital from venture capitalists in Co-Founders Capital. I know you've raised money from angel investors that are inside and outside of our network. Yep. And you've raised some money from this, this angel investor that some people might know by the name of Mark Cuban. Yeah. And during that, you were on this little show called Shark Tank. Why don't you tell us about, about that experience? So Shark Tank... It still feels like a dream, the whole thing. But let me tell you how it started. When you launch a company, when you tell your friends, I'm quitting my job and I'm launching this startup, after you get over the nonsense of not telling them what your idea is, which hopefully you guys will all do sooner than I did, if people like your idea, fairly frequently, I would hear, that's a really good idea. You should go on Shark Tank, okay? <laughs> And I'm telling you, I heard this dozens of times and I heard it so much that it became like a like a knee jerk reaction for me to immediately dismiss it and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now let me focus on things I can actually control that are actually going to happen. You know what I mean? Fast forward a few years into reward stock. We get a support email from one of our users that says, hey, I really like this platform. It's really cool. And I'm a casting producer for Shark Tank. I think you guys should apply. That's probably one of the nicer customer support emails that, oh, yeah. that you're, well, you're, you're going to find. It is. But at the time, we did not think it was legit. So we all in, on the RewardSock team like forwarded that around to each other with different jokes in the, in the comment. So like, I sent a note to the team forwarding that saying, like, yes. And I'm also a Nigerian prince and I need you to hold my inheritance, <laughs> right? It felt like we were getting catfished in some way. But after a couple of days, I decided, let me at least just, you know, double check that this is fake. And they had a whole LinkedIn profile and everything. And I was like, wow, if they're catfishing, at least they went the extra mile. I like kudos to them. They ended up being legit. And so I embarked on the, the very long process of applying for Shark Tank. And I think about a thousand pages into, <laughs> into the application, I, I finished. The whole time, 
I was expecting them to, at some point, reach out to me and say, you know, thank you for your interest. We've decided not to choose you for the show. And for some reason, they just kept moving me along to the, the, the next phase of things. And I, I just kept waiting for it to fall apart, but it never did. And before I knew it, I, I found myself in front of Mark Cuban and, and a bunch of other sharks making my pitch. And, and John, one of the stories that we always tell, which I think is fun is they, they keep you pretty, pretty quiet when you're going through that shark tank process and you're yeah. really not allowed to tell anybody. And I remember a time John walking into the office and basically saying, I need to raise a bunch of money and I can't tell anybody why <laughs> just, just in case he wound up getting onto shark tank and the show. Cause once you get on, then the show has to air and he needed to be ready in case that show aired, which it did probably about what, what is that? Two or three years ago. Our episode was on November 18th, 2018. So I thought that was, that was cool. John, how long, you know, when you're on shark tank and obviously those are very experienced investors asking you, asking you questions, when you watch the show, it seems pretty surface level questions that they're asking. And it's almost the same thing on every show, those types of questions they ask. But how long did they actually talk to you in real life before the editing was done? Yeah, so the episode ends up being like 10 or 15 minutes. But I talked to the Sharks for uh, about an hour and a half. So wow. a, lot of, a lot of back and forth conversation. And a lot of it, you know, is conversation that might not be as interesting to an audience as as it would be to an investor right just just kind of blocking and tackling understanding about the business legal incorporation all those types of things what's cool about you know from my experience in our episode is you know all the the juicy stuff you know makes it to the to the episode and all the negotiation you know pretty much the entire negotiation is 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 shown so that's that's really cool John, what whether it's from from us at co-founders or the sharks, obviously you've had some of the the most successful investors in the world ask you questions and poke and prod you um, and other angels. What do you think were some of the best questions that people asked you during diligence? There were certainly, you know, some some smart questions asked around the technology and what's what's possible with our technology stack. Co-founders did a ton of diligence on on technology. I remember part of what helped get David over the fence to decide to invest was I had a meeting with with David and and a guy named Alex who was one of David's sort of technical advisors and Alex was very knowledgeable about the reward ecosystems and and also the technical aspects of what it would take to deliver our solution. So we have this awesome meeting where I walk through and I do a demo and it, it shows off, you know, what Rewardstock can do. And it didn't crash. The demo didn't crash. The demo didn't crash. And wow. it was nice because it highlighted an option that Alex, who can calculate all this stuff in his head, he had calculated a path to try to get this one trip and Rewardstock technology had shown an option for, for fewer points. And he didn't realize that was possible through some transfers and things like that. And so... So, so that helped to get him to understand that, you know, the technology was, was, was meaningful. But you're talking to investors that understood the problem. At least they had some real world pain point around that solution. Well, yes. And that got Alex to where he was on board. David, he was, I think a further step removed from it. 
And so what, what was awesome is, you know, we finished that meeting and I could tell that Alex was supportive, but I, I and that David was still a little bit on the fence. So David ends the meeting and says, hey, I got to go. Thanks for the presentation. I have to actually take a trip to New York. And uh, it was like a last minute trip to go to a board meeting for one of his other companies. He was telling me how because the trip was last minute, he ended up having to pay $1,000 for a round trip flight from Raleigh to New York. That was just sat in my mind as I'm you know, driving home. And when I get home, I just decided to pull it up on reward stock and show what he might have paid for that trip if he had been <laughs> using our technology. I took a, a screenshot of it and I emailed it to him. And he ended up this, you know, they say timing is everything. He ended up opening the email right as his flight was about to take off that he just paid $1,000 for. And I showed him how he could have gotten that exact same seat on the exact same flight for less than 12 bucks. When he landed, he, he sent me a note and he was just like, I want to have another conversation. Yeah, that, that's, that's demonstrable ROI right there. That's, that's right. That's, that's for sure. So, so through, through all the diligence that you've gone through, the Shark Tank diligence, VC diligence, other angels, anything that really irked you in the process? Anything really annoying that investors did? Uh, you can generalize so you don't make me feel real bad about <laughs> something we did. Yeah, uh, specifically Tim. Just uh, talking to him. Yeah. One of the things that's the most frustrating, and th- this isn't going to be terribly surprising, right? But the, I think the thing that's most frustrating for an entrepreneur is not knowing where an investor stands. Because that leaves you in a place where you're hopeful and you're anxious. With Shark Tank, for example, there's a process that you get, you know, that happens on the show, right? Where you see what investors might be interested on the show. But then there's a a diligence process that happens after that. That process took longer than I expected. And so it's a lot of anxiety. And then, you know, throughout that process, you start hearing people you know, that, that went on the show that they didn't actually get the deal after the show. So that, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and something like that. One thing that I will say that David did that I appreciate in my first round with co-founders is he didn't say with certainty that he was going to invest, but, you know, sort of after that meeting that I was just talking about and that, that, that exchange and, and kind of where he got on board and he, he, he started to like it. I remember he asked me what my timeline was to where I, where I would need the, the money. He kind of nodded that he felt like that was achievable. You know, there wasn't a commitment, you know, at that point. We didn't have a term sheet, but, you know, it was moving in that direction. And at the whole time, he had invited me to work out of his, his co-working space at, at Co-Founders Lab. And so I felt connected to him. I would see him on a regular basis. And so I felt like if his mind was changed, that he would let me know. And so I felt like there was at least some degree of visibility to when when he would make an investment, provided he was he was still on that path and and that I wasn't, you know, completely, you know, sort of in the dark as to to what he's thinking. And I've had other investors that, you know, I've had great conversations with and in my mind, the next step would be an investment or a term sheet or some conversation around, you know, timeline. 
and it was kind of left more vague and you know ultimately those obviously didn't turn into investments and so but the you know the the kind of the conversation was so great and they never said they weren't going to invest and so it just kind of left it in sort of like this uncertain anxious stage and that that's that's very frustrating and what we found at co-founders it's a it's a very fair question for entrepreneurs to ask investors back what is your timeline if you ask an entrepreneur normally the answer an entrepreneur gives on you know, what's your timeline is, well, I'd like to have the money in my bank three months ago. Thank you very much. Right. But if you ask an investor, there are certain things that are not any fault of the entrepreneur that they can't control. How many other deals are you looking at at this moment? Are you deep in diligence on another deal and won't be able to invest in this opportunity for 30 or 60 days or 90 days or Mm -hmm. whatever it is? Do you need to raise, do you need to do another capital call before you can make this investment? Do you need to wait on some money to come in your bank as an angel investor before you can write this check? And those are very fair questions, I think, for an entrepreneur to ask an investor about timeline. So that's a good point, John. John, I'm going to I'm gonna ask you a hypothetical here. So you've been successful with reward stock. You've had a successful exit. So let's say you decide to start angel investing. You have a $100,000 check that you have to give to one of 10 companies. You're going to meet with 10 companies and you have a $100,000 check in your hand. You only get to ask one question to each of the companies. What's the one question you ask to help make your decision? That's a good one. I like that question. I think I would probably ask, what will it take for you to quit? And I and I'd ask that because you made this point earlier, right? That A mediocre idea with a good entrepreneur has a better chance of success than a great idea with a mediocre entrepreneur. And one of the things that I've heard that's always resonated with me is that success in entrepreneurship is about staying alive long enough to get lucky, right? And I think that that my experience uh, reflects that, right? And how do you stay alive? An entrepreneur has to be scrappy in every way and has to look at adversity as just another hurdle. With reward stock, when we would face technical challenges or funding challenges, I always looked at it as this is just one more thing that is is within my job description as a founder to figure out a solution to. So I think for the entrepreneur, it's important that you have enough conviction that it's going to take a lot to make you quit, but it's not that you would never quit, right? If someone were to tell me, I will never quit this, that might signal that, that they're either naive or that they're immovable. Because for me, what I would tell people is, you know, how long are you going to do this? Because when you start a company, it's not going to take six months to know if it's going to be successful. If you, if you, you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of like the Hollywood story, but in reality, startups take a lot longer to reach a, a point of success because usually there's pivots or the, the market has to catch up to where you are, or you have to uh, adapt. Right. So it's, it's not that, that you'll never quit, but when people ask me, how do you keep going? What I would always say is every day I wake up, that I believe that the problem I'm trying to solve still exists and that I can still solve it, then I will keep going. As long as those things are true for me, rain, snow, or, or sleet, right? I'm still, <laughs> I'm still going for it. But if the facts change, 
and the problem doesn't exist, or I learned that the problem was misidentified, or that I realized that I'm the solution to that problem is something that's that's really far outside of my my reach, then I have to evaluate, you know, is it feasible for me to to make the adjustment to to reach that? Or is this something that that I'm not going to to actually be able to solve and be realistic about it? That that that's the probably the question I would ask the entrepreneur. That, that's a great question. Well well John, thank you so much for your time. Always awesome to catch up. Fun to relive the stories that we've been through together and appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much. That was Tim McLaughlin with John Hayes. For more on Rewardstock, which is now a part of Experian, visit rewardstock.com. Also, for more upcoming news on this podcast and an upcoming course from Tim, sign up for our newsletter at firstcheckpodcast.com. And if you like this show, please subscribe, rate, and review on any podcast app, including the one you're listening to right now. And find us on Instagram or Twitter at firstcheckpod. This podcast is a production of EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on First Check. Hey everyone, this is Jason Gillikin, CEO of EarFluence, which produces this podcast. And if you made it this far, I'm guessing you like this podcast. So I would love for you to check out another podcast that we produce. Welcome to the Hustle and Gather podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Dana. We're sisters and serial entrepreneurs. We started our first business with a Craigslist ad, planning a wedding for $125 each. We built a floral business and then shut it down because we kind of hated it. We built our venue on sweat, caffeine, and maxed out credit cards. But we scaled to 16 team members and we can't imagine working for anyone else. We drink and we swear. And we talk about all the bullshit that goes into running a business. Tune in to Hustle and Gather on any podcast app or visit hustleandgather.com. 